So you, like Bane from Batman, have been locked in a cage for two days and they're throwing you red meat and they're poking you with a stick. And then when the vital moment comes and these two forces meet in this fate-created village up in the mountains in Wales, they unleash you upon the advancing personnel, is that correct? It, yeah, me, me and a few other people. And before this, this, so what did this you do? event... What did you do? So, so before this event started, they, a truck came and dropped about... It must have been about four tons of potatoes. Potatoes, down. not the potatoes again. <laughs> Anything but the potatoes. So they, so they wouldn't let us throw rocks, but they did drop off potatoes. And those, those were enough. our weapon. Fair our enough. weapon of choice was the potato. Oh, welcome to the podcast with your host, Laura... <coughs> Sorry, something in my throat. Oh, that's better. Yes, welcome to my podcast, Walk with Lawrence, the podcast where I walk and talk with some wonderful human beings. Some of them will be my friends. Some of them will be people I've just met. Either way, it's going to be a scrumptiously delightful conversation that I hope you get a lot from. I hope you have some laughs. I hope you have some tears. A whole range of emotions. Either way, I hope you enjoy it. And I love you very much. And thank you very much. Here's the podcast. The universe provides... Like an angel, you arrived, a fellow Welshman, as my next-door neighbour in Hampshire. We have bonded over many a gym and non-gym workout, along with talks about life and being a man in this modern world. You like it so far? Keep going. So next up. Your boss, General Stan McChrystal, was on the Tim Ferriss podcast a few years back. You yourself, a veteran of the war in Iraq, you seem to be a man who has lived many varied chapters of his life already to get to this point. So, to give the listeners some context, maybe you could give us an overview of your adult life up to this point, Mr. Reese Smith. That's a great intro, Lawrence. Yeah. Probably the best introduction I've ever received. <laughs> uh, so thank you. Anytime. Um, yes, so where, where, where do I begin? So, um, adult life, 18. 18. 18. Many, many moons ago now. The 18-year-old Reese left, uh, left South Wales. Crazily, I left South Wales. Why would you do such a uh, thing? I went not far, to Bristol. Well, same I as spent, me. Uh, although we never, we never met no. in Bristol. No. Um, I was on the right side of the tracks. You were on the wrong <laughs> side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I spent three years in Bristol, at university in Bristol. And, uh, and then I, I stayed on for a couple of years after that. Doing it, what? Working the working the doors, working the doors as as, as it goes. Yes, so as a I'd, bouncer, you I were seeking a... out some danger. Where you, you fancy education wasn't enough. You wanted a bit of danger, so you went to work the doors as a bouncer. Yeah. How big are you, Reese? What's your size? I'm I'm six foot four, and uh, when we both went to the gym on the weekend, I think I was topping out at one hundred and five point five kilos. One hundred and ten, I think it was. <laughs> Oh, it's 105.5. <laughs> so you're a big lad, basically, to paint a picture for the listeners. So you've got a degree, and then you decide that you want to work on the doors because... Well, it was, it was a part-time job, basically, to get some, some extra cash in. You need so... to get rid of that aggression. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I was a... And still am a lover, not a fighter. True. Um, but I, but a, great, a great part-time job, and a lot of lessons. A lot of lessons from working on the doors that I, that I use today. But so we can get into as? that. No, such uh, as? Um, just being able the way to, to end a fight is to throw the first punch. <laughs> <laughs> Kick them in the nuts. 
just just talking to people. I never ever got into a serious fight, uh, and I think that's because I like talking to people and listening. Perhaps this is uh, a life skill as a bouncer, and that's such an accolade to be a bouncer for three years, whatever it was, albeit part time. But you can't do it full time because it's a nighttime job. Basically, to never have been in a fight as a bouncer is a success story. It means you're a great negotiator. Is it? I'd like to think so. And I, I, I worked in some posh places as well. Of course, I know, but we don't want to talk about that now. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to depict you as this Welsh animal who's been set free. Indeed. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that chapter closed. Um, I, I lived in South Africa for seven months in Cape Town, which is incredible. Doing what? Um, I, I worked for a, a tourism company. So they did helicopter rides, boat trips, shark diving. And I... This is after... This is after university, after working the door. Although I did a bit of door work down there as well. Okay. Just for fun. Um, and I, I developed an online booking system for this, for this company. And, uh, got, wow. got to enjoy the delights of Cape Town as a, as a young single man. Oh. Which was good. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I've long forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I, I, I took a trip out to the US. I, I taught kids how to water ski on a summer camp out there for a couple of summers. That was... A great, great little chapter. So from university degree to club bouncer in Bristol to tech company and tourism board in, tourist board in South Africa to uh, America to where in America? Massachusetts. To Massachusetts doing what, sorry? Teaching kids how to water ski. So these are many different chapters. You're you're a man who's not afraid of change to, to seek out new horizons. Well, I think perhaps back then I was probably more lost than oh, I see. seeking out change. So this, um, this was not successful. This, this was you kind of wondering, although was. My, not all those who wonder are lost. Quite true, quite true. I, I, I like to think I've found myself now. Um, so how did you find yourself? What was next and what made it well, happen I think, I think the army is, is where I found myself. I joined the army in 2006. Interesting time to join the army. It was a very active time. And there I stayed for just over five years. Served in the House of Cavalry, tour of Iraq, tour of Afghanistan, um, at some quite quite punchy periods in, in, in the wars there. Which we're going to talk about later in this podcast episode. Yep. Um, then I left. I left the army in 2011. I went out to the Middle East. I worked in private security for, an, for a few years. Back in Iraq, back in Afghanistan. Um, then I went and did an MBA at London Business School. So many chapters, Reese. <laughs> so many. Cha- I've just been a PT for twelve years. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But Nothing wrong with that. Oh, thanks. So yes, you did so, an MBA. So, in, so I did uh, an MBA at London Business School. Yeah. And that, and that, I guess, was part of my transition back to the UK. So I had a came back to the UK with a with a wife and three lovely children a yes. year and a half ago. Absolutely. Landed in this. Beautiful Amazing little corner. <laughs> village next to, next to you. Next to fellow Welshman. And, and here we are. And the, the stars align, the universe delivered, and here we are. We've had many conversations offline. Um, this is a conversation that we had online so that all of you wonderful listeners could get an insight into Reese's life, not just because you're nosy, but because actually there's so many lessons to be learned about this. The episode is titled control amongst the chaos and we're going to talk about control amongst the chaos in a military setting in war zones in business in family and in our own personal lives as well and how you can navigate and negotiate your way through the chaos 
to hopefully live your best life. Sound good? Sounds great. Let's do it. How long until you were in a conflict situation? So you had a year at Sandhurst, yeah, and then were you straight into it? Or straight, you... straight into it. Like most people who joined at that time. Wow. After their basic training, were one year of training into yeah, one year of training, and then I think three months of specific role training, and then I was in Basra in Iraq. Right into the heat of the battle. Yep. Um, yeah. As it were. Um, so this is where uh, I suppose you know we start to talk about chaos, and. I know, obviously, going through Sandhurst, they, there, there are a number of kind of training um, procedures they take you through to get you as accustomed to chaos as one can. Uh, can you give us an example of, of that? Yeah, perhaps a couple of examples. They, Sandhurst is a, is a leadership academy. Um, so they're trying to train people teach people how to become good leaders in order to do that they they model the program on the infantry so very the most fundamental part of fighting really fighting a war so there's a lot of infantry tactics um one one particular exercise is is pretty memorable and that's the uh, where, where they take you through this riot control public order scenario that gets particularly hairy so you're a big guy six foot four 110 kilograms whatever it might be and they've singled you out haven't they and they've said there's the particular role that we need you for they did so we so the british army has spent decades dealing with this for real in northern ireland so there are experts that have you know world-leading knowledge on riots and public order and you get you get taught all the theory on it before you go and actually do this and apparently there's generally a a two percent of any big demonstration or or group that spills over into violence about two percent are called the hardcore the hardcore rioters they're the people that actually do the damage i do apologize so unprofessional i'm sorry you've got to take a work call so in demand i'm gonna ignore it um (laughs) About 2% of the hardcore rioters. And uh, so when we were doing this exercise, I, I got a tap on the shoulder and uh, was, was very pleased to take on the, the role of one of the hardcore rioters. They selected you. Why would they select you? Such a calm, no, placid, no low-key human being. I have no idea. I have no idea. So what was your job? So my job, so the, the, for the first three days of the exercise, we, we played the civilian population uh, in this this village which has been built specifically for for training people on public order in an urban environment and so for three days we existed as a civilian population would and slowly slowly the the situation became more tense and escalated into this scenario where the the security forces so the other one of the other companies at Sandhurst had to um had to come and rescue someone that we'd captured from the other side of the town so our job was to as the civilian population the people rioting were to stop them from advancing through the town and they came forward with their riot shields and helmets and batons and uh and, and we were there as a as an angry mob to stop them from doing that so you like bane from batman have been locked in a cage <laughs> for two days and they're throwing you red meat and they're poking you with a stick 
And then when the vital moment comes and these two forces meet in this fake created village up in the mountains in Wales, they unleash you upon the advancing personnel, is that correct? It, yeah, me, me and a few other people. And before this, this, so what did this you do? event... What did you do? So, so before this event started, they, a truck came and dropped about, it must have been about four tons of potatoes. Potatoes, down. not the potatoes again. <laughs> Anything but the potatoes. So they, so they wouldn't let us throw rocks, but they did drop off potatoes. And those, those were enough. our weapon. Fair our enough. weapon of choice was the potato. What, what did they go for? What variety? No, they, they were big ones. Big ones, that's all that matters. No, yeah, I, 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 I don't, they probably weren't fit for consumption. Okay. Um, I hope not, because that would be a waste. But a good hefty size good baking hefty potato. fist sized baking potato. Oh, yum. It's yum. a nice bit of weight behind it. Lovely. So our job basically was to pelt the, the advancing security forces with potatoes, and then the hardcore rioters, like me, were tasked with going up to the line of shields and basically intimidating people uh, in the shield line, trying to break the shield line. That's, that's the job of the security forces, to keep a, um, an unbroken shield line, much like, I guess, the Roman army would do. The legionnaires. The legionnaires. Yeah. Um, they, they, they have to keep that shield line unbroken, so our job was to try and break the shield line and now, ultimately try and capture one of the security forces. Now, Reese, were you successful in this mission of yours? Well, I... I the interesting thing about it, and I didn't know this at the time, but they had put the female platoon on the shield line, the front line. Um, so you couldn't it, tell whether they were male or female, you, you just saw people with shields in you, front of you? You can't tell because it's dark, they use flood lighting, um, which is, it has a bit of a glare. Everyone's behind a six foot shield, they have helmets on, they have body armor on, so you can't really see the individual behind and you, them. And you have, you're just in a potato rage. It, it's interesting because uh, even though it's completely made up and it's an artificial situation, very quickly you get drawn into this. And um, although I, I try and pride myself on being someone who can control themselves and control their emotions. You lost control, didn't I you? I did. Well, it was my job to lose control, so I guess I let it happen. So you, 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 you basically surrendered to your inner red mist and you let it take over you. And like the Tasmanian devil, you unleashed full fury upon the front line of shields, which um, doesn't matter, but, but happened to be um, a number of the women recruits? Yes. Lady recruits? Yeah, yeah, the female platoon. And so what happened? Uh, well, this, this scenario plays out over half the night, so you're there for four hours doing this. And it ebbs and flows, so you have periods where it escalates and then you kind of withdraw for a bit. Um, but ultimately, they end up getting down the street and rescuing this person, and then you fight them all the way back as they get back to their base. It turns out I gave one girl a pretty nasty black eye. I didn't, I didn't realise at the time. Um, you, you went, to, you went a bit, you went in a bit hard, didn't you, Reese? And they, uh, they have to say, actually, Reese, that's <laughs> enough. Didn't they have to pull you off and say, Reese? They did. They we, did tell me to calm down. Reese, it's, it's over. We finished this. Two I, days ago, and you're still going strong, giving people black eyes. I just wanted, I just wanted to deliver the most authentic experience possible, really. So it's quite awkward. Then the next day, you know, you sort of the whole exercise is over, and you're back. In. Well, no, the ne the next day the exercise wasn't over. The oh, next the God. next day we we they delivered more potatoes. We rotated roles, so we became the security force, ah. and the company that we've been trying to beat up 
became the civilian population. So they, they, got, they got a chance for revenge. The tables were turned. And they did get their revenge, so. So what, what did that feel like? What was the difference on the other side? So you would walk into the street with the shields shoulder to shoulder, advancing forward. What emotions do you go through? Because this is all part of the training to make you feel emotions that you will feel on the battlefield. As much as possible, yeah. And I, I'd say it's pretty effective. Um, fear? Definitely fear. Um, you, you have very little control over the situation and the person they put in charge of the platoon, they call it command appointment and that guy's being tested on how well he can control the situation. I was behind a three foot shield when, when, our team, when our turn came to advance up and the three foot shield guys are the people that run through the six foot shields in a moment of controlled uh, aggression and using batons hit the rioting civilian population in order to gain ground. So that, so that was my role. And, and again, and you were perhaps too successful in, in this job of yours that you were tasked with. I don't know about that, but... Um, How many people know. did he take down, Reese? Ten, <laughs> yeah. ten in one you swooping you, strike. You, you almost lose count. And, and, and in Just reality, you can't, them like flies. you can't actually see anything. You loved it, so didn't you? And then in that moment, you knew, this is why I joined the army. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going over the top. You're getting into it, Lawrence. Yeah, I am. So you, you, I, think, is... I think you, sh you should have been there. Yeah, I would have. <laughs> you would have enjoyed it. I would have thrown those potatoes like there's no tomorrow, Reese. I would have gone for maybe a few new potatoes instead, just smaller ones to get through the shields. Um, so, so interesting. So, um, so let's talk about rage and let's talk about fear, two on the edge of the spectrum kind of emotions that we don't tend to feel in everyday life, do we? I mean, you may, I don't know. I mean, I think that these are kind of unique moments that you've experienced that a lot of civilians listening to this uh, won't potentially, I hope, have experienced being in a riot. Um, what did you learn about yourself? Well, I, I, I think... That you were I bloody good at writing. <laughs> I, think, I think lots of people experience rage. And even now I, I experience rage and I'm sure a lot of people listening do. But like back then I could actually enact on that in, in a way that was, a, was allowed. But of course, nowadays, you can't really act on that rage and you have to control yourself a bit more. And it's but very guess, boring with all the laws of the land nowadays. Oh, Political correctness gone mad. And the fear side is um, it's pretty unique. I don't, I don't think, and I, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hope that people experience that kind of fear. And um, that exercise was just it, a made-up exercise, and wasn't, wasn't real. But then going to war and experiencing fear for real is a, is a very unique experience. And well, not... I, I want to touch on that in a second. But the next, so the next um, emotion I want to talk about is, again, another simulated environment in which you get taken for bayonet training in Sandhurst. That's it. Yeah, so bayonet training is a... Very raw, I would imagine, this whole experience. It is. And when you, when you think about... When you think about what the army is is there to do, ultimately, and especially the infantry, they're there to close with and kill the enemy. And at its most visceral and personal, that could involve stabbing someone with a bayonet, uh, which is not um, not something that I enjoy thinking about, but, but ultimately it could come down to that. It's so. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, they, they take you through this training exercise where they, they physically exhaust you um, they, and they mentally exhaust you as well. And then they, 
they, they attempt to get you into this mental state where you are hyper-aggressive. Didn't take much for you again, did it? <laughs> I, was there, I was there in a couple of minutes. <laughs> um, and then you go through this simulation of stabbing um, sandbags that look like bodies, people. And they make you scream. And they make you scream. They, they, they shout things. And they, they have this mantra. And you repeat it over and over and over again. And they drill it into you. And it's, what is the bayonet for? And they, shout, they get in your face and they shout this at you. And your response is to kill. And you've got to scream this at them. Wow. And they will repeat it again and again. And you repeat your answer to kill, to kill. And then they say, wow. who are you going to kill? And your response to that is the enemy. Um, and then they say stuff like, show me your war face. Which sounds quite comical. Man, this, this sounds like a sort of kind um, of Vietnam War film, you know, like kind of full metal jacket type stuff. But this is, this is real, this is British military training. This, and this happens, this happens weekly in infantry training establishments now. Um, so they say, show me your war face. And if you're just talking about this as we are, it sounds a bit comical. But when you're there, you're so hyped up. Yeah that you show your war face and you scream wow. and like spits coming out. Is the war face the same as your cum face? <laughs> <laughs> don't you don't have to answer that I, question. I, I hope not, for the, sake, <laughs> for the sake of my dear wife. I hope, it, oh I hope, I hope there's a subtle difference. <laughs> yeah. So, um, crazy, okay, yeah. I mean, like, I just think it's quite a unique process isn't it to be trained within a year to go into air uh and to go to go to war let's just be honest about it and so there's they can't beat about the bush they have to they have to be pretty to the point and full on with your training within a year and it sounds like that's pretty much what happens so no 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 pun intended there to the point right to the point well thankfully i never had to do anything like that in real life but uh but i think i think some infantry units did fix bayonets in afghanistan um and, and that training would have come in pretty useful. Crikey. Um, yeah, full on, very full on. Um, okay, so maybe let's have a little talk about your, your time in Iraq and Afghanistan, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, okay, it's just something which I think that as a civilian, you know, we're, we'll never fully understand, but we're always fascinated by. And that all, you know, I think everyone asks them, themselves the question, how would they respond in that situation of, you know, coming under fire or whatever it might be, and you have fear, rage, all these kind of emotions that you've been hopefully trained as much as one can be, but then you come to the real deal. I mean, how, how do, does that play out in your mind? Um, Very broad it, question. Though. Yeah, I... I I think it varies from, from person to person. I, um, there are some people I met and served with who absolutely loved fighting. They loved it. And I guess it's the same type of people who would be into like MMA or something like that now. Yeah. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't love combat. Um, I looked at it as a, as a necessary thing to achieve an objective, but didn't love it. And I think for pretty human reasons, I, I definitely got scared and was fearful for my life and the life of 
the people that I was leading. Um, and I think the preservation of life is, is something that should hopefully be at the forefront of most people's minds when they're, when they're out there. The ironic thing is, though, that you, you're often less effective when that is at the top of your mind. If you have to go and do something particularly difficult and is dangerous, being aggressive, staying on the front foot, taking the fight to the enemy will often get you a better outcome than mm. hiding in a ditch mm. um, just because of the nature of, of warfare. It's, it's, it's better to be moving and to be aggressive if you're going to win. So trying to balance those two things is, is a real big challenge, I think, or was for me. So you kind of got within the conflict, you've got this kind of conflict between tactics and, and morality, if you like. And not, yeah, and not, and not wanting to die. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, and, I, and I, I look back on this now and think, should I have been more aggressive at some points? Was I, was I aggressive enough? Did I, did I do absolutely everything I should have done to get the job done? Um, very thankfully, no one under my command was seriously injured mm. in either Iraq or Afghanistan. It could have easily been. Uh, but yeah, that which, that, which, that... which would, in my mind, um, paint a picture that absolutely you did the right thing. Right. If that was the outcome. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, so did, so did, did that whole experience, we'll talk about the experience twofold. Number one, for you personally, and the way it shapes your outlook on life as a whole. Um, did, it, did you come away from that experience in the military, from that time in the military? Um, you're talking about how much you hold um, life, you know, dearly and, and how much it is to be cherished. Is, is, there, is there a sort of new approach that you feel that you have to life, having had that experiences that you might not have had otherwise? I think that uh, the perspective it gives you is probably the most valuable thing. Mm. Um, we, we talked a bit about emotions just then and fear, anger and rage. And to be able to experience those emotions at a, at a pretty high level and, and hopefully deal with them in an effective way, I think gives you a perspective that um, is, is useful now that I'm back in the real world and mm. dealing with problems that, that aren't really life or death. Yeah. Talking about money, is, is that... That can be important, but it's... Uh... Man, do you know what? Perspective is one of my key words that I like to have um, in the back of my mind for when I feel like I'm losing, you know, perspective in some shape or form emotionally or if I start worrying or thinking about the, what I think might be the wrong things. I find that it's so good for my mental health to, to always have periods in which I sit down and deliberately get perspective over my life the current situation yeah yesterday we uh, we went we took the family to the war aviation museum and every time so i've, I've, I've taken trips over to um to Yeep as well um on the 100 year anniversary of my uh, great-grandfather's death and we've we've toured around um where the first world war took place and whenever i read into history and whenever i go and look at it and i think upon it I'm always left with such perspective and I come away and all the kind of fears and frustrations that I had pre that reflection just melt away and I almost laugh at myself for having 
worried so much about all the petty little things that we tend to in day-to-day life. Um, so perspective, it's a huge tool. Um, it is. For, and for that's, living better, I think. And I think that's not, it's not to belittle problems because everyone has problems and those problems might be pretty important to them. And we're not talking life or death, but nonetheless, they're important. Um, but I think what, what I and, I, and I, and I battle with this every day still, is looking at problems and just kind of framing them and thinking, do, do I really expect that I'm going to live my life without problems? Am I going to be, is like the day I, I finally solve all my problems, the day I win? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's always going to be something. And I think accepting that and then in, in dealing with issues and problems, not focusing on how I'm going to solve them, having confidence that they will be solved and almost parking them yeah. and focusing on, I don't know, enjoying life. And Yes, you can frame your, you can frame your mindset, can't you? Um, I think um, there's another word there as well. Um, that I've been talking to a couple of my friends about recently as well and it's that word of surrender of framing a problem um, you can decide whether to surrender to it or not and whether to live your life um, in other ways focusing on other more positive energies as well let's talk about motivation motivation let's talk about motivation so are you a man that struggles with motivation Yes. Yes, there we go. I think oh, it's a... so honest, like, because you're, you're an on it guy who is kind of um, very efficient, very effective, and, you know, a lot of people would look at you and say, you know, he's successful, he's good at what he does, but you struggle with motivation and you're not afraid to admit that. I think that's brilliant. We always think that, particularly, I find this in the fitness industry, we keep, we feel like we've always got to sort of put on this facade that we're always motivated, we're always kind of keen beans and ready to kind of jump up and work out or whatever it might be. But motivation, you, you said something very inter- interesting to me before about motivation being an emotion and therefore you can't feel it all the time. That's right. It, it's, it's exactly an emotion. And uh, much like happiness, you'll, you'll go through periods where you're happy and when you're sad. And you, it's, it's impossible to be happy the entire time, uh, much like it's impossible to be motivated the entire time. And I, I think unless unless you have and, have and feel something like true sadness, it's kind of a cliche, I guess, but you never really know what true happiness is, right? So you have mm. to experience both. And, yes. and with motivation, yeah, it ebbs and flows, and there's a lot of things that impact on it. And yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely someone that struggles with motivation. So um, what would be your advice to someone who also struggles with motivation. The intent is there. I think there's a difference between motivation and intent. Mm-hmm. But the motivation to actually get shit done. In the army, you're part of this big machine and you receive orders and there are people relying on you. So you have to uh, turn your cog to turn the next cog and so on. But in everyday life and um, as a sort of, now you've left the army and this is probably more relatable to everyone listening, as a regular guy in Civvy Street, how do you get shit done when you're not feeling motivated yeah well I, I guess the answer is the answer is the same whether it be for individual personal issues of motivation and organizational motivational issues 
And, that, and, and, and the answer and the key to it, I think, in my opinion, is discipline. And to discipline your bad day. <laughs> is that something different? The, the, well, it could be. Uh, <laughs> it's having, it's creating an environment that, and, and a structure and a framework that you can rigidly stick to. That's the word structure, because again, to relate back to when you're in the army, you have the structure and you understand where you fit in with it. You know, I, I'm a self-employed guy, so I said structure, and as you say, a family guy with kids, sometimes structure goes out the window and there are all these things that you want to do and the intent is there. Yep. And you finish days or weeks thinking, crikey, I've not touched on half of that stuff because the structure isn't there. Um, but it comes down to accountability, doesn't it? To create that structure yourself and, and a bit of ownership. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, two, two, two great words are accountability and ownership. Thank you very much. Um, I, I uh, yeah, again, I put those along with perspective when it comes to kind of words to live by. I actually spoke, um, I actually spoke to a, an ADHD psychiatrist uh, a while ago. And I don't have ADHD. But ADHD is, is, a, is a spectrum. Yeah. So everyone exists somewhere on the line between um, incredibly uh, neurotic. Erotic? Ne- or neurotic? Neurotic. Oh, right. You could be erotically neurotic. I, that's, that's how I th- like to think of you. So that, that would be at the one end. And then the other end, complete ADHD and, and not being able to focus or keep your attention on anything and and so this this guy said to me the the antidote to the problems he sees with a lot of the problems he sees with ADHD that that aren't medical issues can be can be structure and and forcing yourself to have a structure that makes it difficult for you to fall off the wagon yeah and be lazy be undisciplined um in times when you're not motivated because yeah. th- those times are going to come around thick and fast. I, I met a few years ago, uh, six years ago or so, and came up to one of those kind of crossroads in my life where I, the intent was there to up my game a little bit and to start doing more in a number of areas professionally and personally. And the, the concept of sometimes it's ch- easier to change your environment than yourself yeah. was in my head a lot. And I think I posted a picture of it on Instagram and some people obviously um, had uh, took different meanings from that. But for me, what it meant was that, um, you know, I was struggling just to simply do all the things that I wanted to do. So I implemented a number of systems into my life. What, like, silly things, like one of them was just ordering uh, a weekly veg box that no matter what I had to eat. So because I wanted, one of the things I wanted to do was increase my fiber intake and my nutrients and so on. And yeah. so it was like, that is, you know, that's what I'm eating now for the whole week. Um, and, um, you know, the number of other systems I implemented, which I'm going to make a podcast about as well. But it was, it was about changing the environment. And I started to sort of hang out with, um, you know, a new group of people and all this kind of stuff. And um, lo and behold, it was, a, it was a really positive turning point in my life. You can use your, your psychology and the, and, the, and the negative traits that you have for your own good, doing things like that. I think they're called pre-commitment strategies. So if you want to, if you want to pre-commitment, pre-commitment strategy. Oh, that's good. This is why I love chatting to you, Reese. All these little isms you come up with. So if you know that, if you have a goal you want to, you want to achieve, go and go and tell someone that you're doing it. 
and you will feel like they're holding you to account because before you've actually done it, you've committed to doing it and you've shared that among your friendship group and it, and it kind, of, kind of forces you to do it because you know people are watching. A bit like this podcast, I haven't even launched it yet, but I've been telling everyone, friends and then my followers online, yep. that I will be doing a podcast because I want to go in deeper with the content that I create and I have some great conversations offline, I want to share them online, etc. And having said this a number of times, I was like, oh shit, I've got to do it now. And that, that pressure, that nagging pressure every day was like, come on, you've committed to other people now, not just yourself. Get it done, and here we are getting it done. It's beautiful. You can't go back. There's a really interesting book uh, written by a guy called James Clear, um, and it's called The Power of Habit. And he talks in great depth about how to set up your environment to promote good habit formation. Because it's not easy. It's not easy to do, unless you create the right environment. I, I try and eat well in the house. Mm. Well, the whole time I try and eat well. But as soon as we have some junk food in the house, kids' snacks or whatever, yeah. I, I will just eat the whole lot. Yeah, because the environment's dictating your habits. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, <clears throat> when I was a... Uh, you know, at the same time that I was making all those changes, I really got into my morning routine as well. So... Uh, naturally I'm a sleeper I like to sleep in for long periods and I got reputation for it growing up but I knew I had to change that and so um, throughout my 20s actually I slowly changed it by getting a job in which I had to be in work for 6am every day which helped but I would get up earlier I wouldn't turn on the TV or look at my phone or have any media I would have my coffee and I would make sure that I ate a really healthy breakfast because up until that point I didn't like eating breakfast uh, so I always skipped it, but then I would get too hungry at lunchtime. And then, again, the environment would dictate that I was hungry. I was out and about, therefore I ate sandwiches and crisps, whatever it might be. But I always made sure that if I started the day with a quiet hour to myself, eating the right things, quietly reflecting, then I was kind of in trouble of that. And, you know, you start well, you tend to sort of finish well. Yeah, it's that, 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 that positive cycle that just reinforces itself, right? Like yeah. stacking good habits on top of each other. And from a nutrition point of view, just to go slightly off on a tangent, this is where I think um, a lot of people get it, uh, you know, misguided advice, but obviously there's a big focus on uh, calories in, calories out for weight loss and so on, which mathematically completely is true, makes sense scientifically, but I think it's too simplistic and it papers. And so with that, people say it doesn't matter if you miss breakfast, actually, what is your overall calorie um, intake for the day versus calories out and so on. But for me, that misses the point because a lot of people struggle to eat nutritious foods. They struggle to, um, uh, to give the body what it needs in order to be healthy and to be in a better state for uh, to function, for performance, weight loss, etc. Uh, and nourishment is where a lot of people struggle. So for me, it's always worked well to start the day eating something that I know is, is good for me that will kind of make me perform better through the morning mentally as well as physically and then it kind of sets a tone for the rest of the day. That was a slight tangent but that was me having a little dig at the calorie deficit movement which while it's true and it's a scientific fact that calories in versus calories out etc is the key to weight loss I think the primary thing we need to look at is nourishment and nourishment begins at breakfast. There we go I've said it. Some people disagree with me but it's fine. I often, <laughs> I, I often skip breakfast. Yeah, well, I no, so this is my next point. So I'm telling you about all this kind of like best laid plans environment and creating this uh, morning routine in which, you know, I was meditating, quiet time to myself, no media, no distractions, eating the right thing. And obviously that had a fantastic effect and kicked on 
the next chapter of my life a number of years ago to be a really great one. But this current chapter of my life, you know, we have kids in the house who get up early, who you have to look after. You get curveballs the whole time. The routine, and this is where it relates back to the chaos that you were talking about earlier, albeit a different kind of chaos, but it's still control amongst the chaos, hence the name of this episode. How do you, when you live in a chaotic house, because it's a beautiful chaos when you have a family, how do you maintain control for yourself amongst the chaos? Because let's face it, you know, um, we want to be, you know, providers for family, we want to give our, be- our, our families the best life we possibly can. Therefore, we can't pour from an empty cup. We have to be the best versions of ourselves. It's not easy though, when you are running a family. It's not easy. And I, I don't think I have. Come on, Reece. I don't think I have the answer. We need the answer. No. I think um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a slog, isn't it? And again, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm, these are like comparisons because I think, because I'm talking to you next, military person who understands that you don't always have control of a situation um, when it's chaotic in a war situation. It's the same at home, right? You know, they're not bullets flying. Well, no. there might be, but there's, it's, it's chaos. We don't always have control, but we can still make progress. We can still make headway if the intent is there, right? I think, I think for everyone, the intent is going to be there. Because who doesn't want to be a good father, a good mother, a good, a good husband and wife? A good lover. A good friend. A oh, good sorry, lover. that's a different episode. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think the intent is always there. It's just in the execution. Again, it comes and down to that motivation and structure. And yeah, like, give yeah. and take, there's certain stuff you've got to lose. There's certain stuff you've got to sacrifice. Give I and take is, is, is exactly right. And it's... Like, Are we this, talking about the this love life again? No. <laughs> sorry. I'm, what is wrong with me today? Sorry. Is it my short shorts? Yes, it is. <laughs> we'll take a picture. You You're showing it. too much flesh. Um, I, I think there's, it's just this tension between two different things that are required to exist almost at the same time in the same space. Like you, you said, you can't pour from an empty cup. And I, I love that. I love that phrase. And you have to focus on yourself as a person in order to be the best version of yourself. But at the same time, like I'm not going to be able to go off into a 10-day silent meditation retreat with a wife and three kids at home. Yeah. Um, and that's an extreme example. Not if you still but, want them there when you get back. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, be a hard sell yeah. in, in, yes. in my house. <laughs> um, so it's, it's finding that balance. And then it's, like, it, my, my wife gets this concept too and... I think perhaps it's it's harder for her because she's around the kids more and she probably does a harder job than I do in terms of managing them, their little lives. Mm. So demanding. Um, but if you're constantly give, 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 you'll, you'll end up running out, running out of juice. And um, so I think you have to sometimes be selfish in order to be the best parent husband mm. wife you, you've got to you've got to find a system that works for yourself it's very hard to give uh, advice like this which would be broadly sweeping for everyone listening and that will work for everyone but you have to kind of step back emotionally from your situation because it can be frustrating at times you know being um, being a father being a husband and trying to and trying to be successful with your job as well it can be frustrating because uh, all these little sacrifices that go along the way but um, you need to be at peace with the fact that there's disruption in chaos and yeah. you need to step back from it and look at it non-emotionally and say, how actually can I get the best out of myself and also give 
back to my family what they need in terms of time and timing throughout the day um, to, to the best effect. And what I've, <laughs> what I've noticed with myself is that, okay, well, I, I need to exercise to be the best version of myself, and it's part of my job as well. So training, that has to happen. Um, I also need quiet moments of reflection and creativity. I also need quiet moments in which I can get admin done and so on. But I also need to, to, to be there for my kids, for my wife, and I want to see my kids grow up, and I want to be able to kind of pick them up from nursery or take them to school, whatever it might be. And so I've, and I'm not necessarily recommending this, I'm just saying this is my life at the, <laughs> at the moment. This is how it's happening. I'm kind of working in little work sprints along the way. So uh, for instance, um, I will drive to the gym, I'll have my workout, and that in itself will get my brain and my energy going. And then on my way home when I'm driving, I'll pull over in a country lane somewhere quiet in a lay-by and I'll sit in the car with my phone out and I'll do half an hour of creative work where I get all my ideas down onto notes or onto a page or whatever it might be. I'll then drive home and I'll do a little bit of family time, help the family. I'll then drive or walk, um, as I did the other day, walk to a little quiet spot um, on a hill or on a park bench and do a little bit more work. I'll then do a little bit more family time, then I'll have a phone call. I mean, it's like, it's chaos, right? It's complete chaos. And if you were kind of speaking to someone who uh, worked in an office and was able to get a full day, um, full day's work done on the night to five, they'd be like, How? you know, that sounds absolutely crazy. But for some reason, I'm, it seems to be working for me right now in this current situation. And that to me is control amongst the chaos. And, it, and it's down to discipline. Right? You, can't, you can't operate in that environment unless you're disciplined with how you apportion your time. No, because you get sucked in uh, a different direction. Um, and uh, if you're not, as you say, disciplined with understanding that actually you have to extricate yourself um, from family life and, and get some professional work done before you come back, then, um, you know, it can be a bit too imbalanced. But again, you know, I don't always get that right anyway. Basically, it's the summer and I've been telling myself that it's okay. Everyone else is on holiday, so it's okay to not be that prolific. Um, not productive at the moment, but that's all coming to an end, Reese. The summer's coming to an end. All right, discipline, I love it. Okay, let's talk business because at the end of the day, it is your job. So I'm assuming you're quite good at this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is your job, and I know you're good at this, um, to advise um, people in the business world how to, well, you tell me what your job is. I just saw it, just completely, Stung myself there on a stinging nettle, but this this is great. This is authenticity. This is part and parcel of yeah. a Walk with Lawrence. Yeah, this is this is what happens on a walk with Lawrence out in the wild. So your job, my um, job. Yeah, what is your job? So I my my job is to help organisations execute their strategy. So it's not necessarily the creative part of developing a strategy, because there's always a bunch of smart people who can do that and there's no shortage of good ideas, but it's actually getting it done, the implementation, the execution, that is the hard part. So that's what, that's what we focus on as a firm. Um, I've always, sorry, but again, as, as, a, as a kind of lone wolf sole trader, I've always wondered how the hell do these massive organizations where you've got thousands, tens of thousands sometimes employees, how do they all get shit done and communicate what needs to be done. And, you know, again, this whole control amongst the chaos, that's another 
situation in which it in my head would be so chaotic and yet somehow there's control and these businesses become yep. so successful how well it, it's uh there's a concept called taylorism which has been around uh since frederick winslow taylor oh yes i know um developed it and it's it's about creating efficiencies and systems and processes where it's very rigid and structured if you look at an organizational chart of a company it's all neat lines and everyone's in their their divisions and their teams and the hierarchy is clear um people know what they're meant to do and that is how organizations try and layer on some level of control but the thing is in the environment we're in today a hyper connected world where information transfer is instantaneous where true value is created in organizations typically in cross-functional teams or by combining specialist skills from different business units that that old organizational structure that is put in place for control and order doesn't work well it just breaks down um, and it's in that space where where we operate and we and we try and help firms which is negotiate that problem it sounds so relatable obviously your boss general stanley crystal there's a big military theme i believe in your company obviously with that and uh, with a number of the employees yeah it makes so much sense that so many learnings and teachings from a military perspective translate over into a business perspective perspective there's a lot of that word there's a lot there's a lot you can you can pass over but i think i think it can be boiled down into a few fundamental things which people listening will think yeah that makes sense and it and and they are they do make sense they are fairly simple so but it's just not it's it's actually doing them that's the challenging thing um I know I can I can I can canter through some of the some some of the frameworks and things we focus on. Yeah, I think that'd be I think that would be nice. This would be a good time. So leading well, like can I put some ideas in your head? Go for it. Leading like a gardener. Yes. So this this concept was it's not it's not a term that I coined. It's from Stan McChrystal. Oh, you should t- you should totally take credit for it. Well, no, I'm sure there'll be people listening who will have me for that. But. <laughs> um, Leading like a gardener. So what does that mean? If, if I go back to my own leadership journey, started off with small teams. I ended up running quite large teams of people out in the Middle East, 70, 80 people doing multiple things um, in, in, an, in an operational role. And it's so difficult to understand everything that's going on at the right time and to have and to feel like you're in control um leading like a gardener you just is, say fuck it well it's it's a, that... it's an acceptance that the gar- the gardener doesn't grow plants and flowers plants grow plants and flowers will grow the garden will grow regardless of what the gardener does i love this so he's a nurturer exactly the, the the role of the gardener is to create the right environment the right conditions for the garden to grow itself so you might 
get down on your hands and knees, knees and, and pull out some weeds. You might give a bit of fertilizer here or there. You're gonna go out and water the garden and show it some love frequently. You're gonna make sure you visit every corner of the garden, but ultimately you're gonna let the garden do what it does and that is grow. So leading like a gardener is, is that concept in organizations and teams. It's, it's being eyes on, hands off. Oh. And allowing people to God, do, this is good. Allowing people to do their job. I uh, experienced tiny bits of leadership in my life when I was captain of a rugby club. And um, you're absolutely right. When you have other leaders below you, when you have people who are good at their job or in case of sport, good at reading a game and taking care of their role within a sporting environment, again, more control amongst the chaos. It's easy being a captain. It's kind of easy. You can kind of let your kind of actions define your leadership or whatever it might be. When you have a bad apple or two, people who don't want to be led, mm-hmm. it can divert your attention, it can undermine you, it can do all sorts. It's a very tricky situation to be in. Um, I mean, do you have any advice for that kind of situation or is it something that you haven't necessarily had to deal with? No, I, I, I have. I think sometimes you've got to go in there and pull out some weeds. Ah, and yes. Cut the that, dead wood. That's, that's a necessary, albeit unpleasant, task. Hmm. but it's got to be done um, but uh, creating the environment to be such that the frequency of that happening is is pretty low should be your focus and then of course we could talk about getting all the, the warning flags and KPIs and hmm. metrics in place so you can spot the uh, the rot before it starts to affect other parts of the team which is a huge skill in itself, I suppose. And yeah. um, I suppose companies devote large departments towards just doing that. I, I'm a bit naive to it all, but I assume. HR departments and everything else, is that there kind of, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Really. Businesses. Oh, no, you're right, you're, you're spot on. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a leader of a business unit or functional department, you've got to work, you've got to work hand in glove with HR because you can't, you can't just go around firing people. Uh, no, and I want to talk about the positive side of working with teams. I want to talk about talent as well, because if I'm if I'm right, you know that what I'm getting from this is that leadership, leadership. What's leadership? Leadership. Is that where you buy leadership? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Excuse me. Is there a leadership around here? I need to. I need a few leaders for my business. Leadership is not something that is provided by the leader. It's provided by the led. You, I think you wrote that, so it better be right. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. It sounds good. No, I think, I think you're exactly right. And uh, a lot of people, including me, often, even now, think leadership is something that you provide as the leader. And as the leader puts themselves up on a pedestal and follow me and all that stuff and let's, let's go off and be great. And that heroic leadership mm. ideal. That, that, and, and you know what's... What's, what's hard about countering that is that people sometimes want that. Mm. And you do have to be this heroic leader. Um, but, but that's not what leadership is. Leadership is an emergent property that exists when you have a leader interact with followers within a certain context. And those three variables change all the time. Reese, last thing I want to talk to you about 
is, uh, as you quite rightly said, something that you and I have very much in common, and that is being a dad. We have c- created other humans, offspring. Yes. We passed three on Three times our, for me. Three times for you, two for me. That's five we've added to the population. The uh, growing world population problem we have contributed to. We've passed on our seed. Job done now. That's Job it. done, that's it. Feet up. We, <laughs> we are out of Thanks here. Thanks very much. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just kind of think that uh, it is quite a big topic in itself and one that we can talk about separately, but just to kind of relate everything that you've spoken about, because I think there's this lovely continued um, kind of control amongst the chaos theme here about, you know, being a, being a parent, being a dad. And it's the same for anyone listening, whether you're a mother, whether you're a dad, uh, or whether you would like to be one day. Um, you know, let me tell you, it certainly is a case of control amongst the chaos. Um, I, I want you just to tell me, Reese, what you find the, the most difficult thing about being a dad. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to read a quote to you. And this is not about, this is not about being a dad, it's about being a tank commander. And this is a quote that you can go and see in the, the Bovington Tank Museum oh. down in Dorset. I oh. spent some time down there, beautiful part of the country. I know, it's near Monkey World. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been one, there. One of, also one of my favourite places to visit. <laughs> um, so this, this quote is from the Second World War and it's from a tank commander, British tank commander. And he's, he's been asked to describe his experience of war. And he says, the 75mm gun is firing. The 37mm secondary gun is also firing but it's traversed around the wrong way. The Browning machine gun is jammed, and I'm saying, driver, advance on the A set. But the driver, who's listening to the B set, can't hear me, and he's reversing. And as I look over the top of the turret and see 12 enemy tanks just 50 yards away, someone hands me a cheese sandwich. <laughs> that sums up parenthood. That does sum up parenthood, and uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, you, you, we we should get we should get our wives on the next one, Lawrence, to really talk about this. No, let's they, not. Let's not do that. <laughs> no, please. They, they deal with they deal with this chaos more than more than us. No, completely, um, completely. But there's just so much going on, isn't there? And trying to get clarity on it is just such a challenge. Which is oh. Again, clarity, that is the holy grail at the moment for me, clarity. And um, <clears throat> is it uh, Yuval, Noah Yuval Harari? I never really Harari. Harari. Um, again, just to kind of paraphrase, but he, I think he says that clarity is power in today's modern world with kind of all this chaos around us. And he's talking about information chaos, but I think it's, um, I think again, it's relevant. But yeah, clarity, it's... Um, it's a hard one to find, so again, we have to kind of. Um... Do you uh, do you have a meditation practice? Uh, I used it's, to. It's, it's become quite fashionable, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, to I, say you meditate. It, I used to. I used to want to admit to it, but now I don't want to admit to it because I don't want to sound like I'm jumping on the meditation the bandwagon. bandwagon. Yeah. But my meditation um, practice has gone out of the window for quite some time, and I, again, it's this thing of intent and motivation. Um, I should I should extricate myself from at the house in the early morning a little bit sooner and I should go out somewhere to the garden shed maybe and meditate 
um, to make it happen. I shouldn't look for excuses for it not happening, but it has slipped away from my routine. I try to live mindfully, so I go on walks. Uh, when I run, I feel like I can sometimes reach a semi-meditative state. Uh, I try to do things like eat mindfully and, and the rest of it and think in an uh, innocent way, but no, it's not there and it needs to be there. East. Do you? I, uh, I, 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 my ups and downs. So I, I try to, but it's not easy. You think it would be easy, right? Just to sit for 10 minutes a day. No. Uh, but it is not. And um, I think, I think a lot of people listening will know that it's a good thing. And um, the, the reason I ask is because we're talking about clarity and being able to make that choice on what you focus on mm. in any particular time. And I think meditation really helps with that. It gives you the, mm. the freedom to choose what it is yeah. you want to focus on. Otherwise, you just, in your head, there's just no, so a thousand chattering monkeys in monkey world yes. telling you to <laughs> exactly. do one thing or another. Yeah, no, completely. And, um, you know, in relating that to parenthood, uh, just the other day, I had uh, our three, four-month-year-old's three, four-month-old son um, screaming, crying on the bed. We had our... Um, two-year-old daughter throwing a massive tantrum uh, was juggling you know a bottle of milk I had um, an email I was meant to reply to and something else kicking off and it was very much like the tank scene that you mentioned there from the second world war and I was thinking at this moment all of those years of practicing my meditation so that I could choose what to ignore are coming into play and so yeah. all the sound was around me but I was somehow able to prioritize and focus on what needed to be done. Calmly put my hands and adjust and look after who needed to be looking after, whilst my brain was somewhere else, problem solving for the email and sending off the reply, all within a space of five minutes. And that's when I knew that I had cracked parenting. And then I turned around. <laughs> that sounds like some bullshit right there. <laughs> <laughs> and then I turned around and was, had sick all over my face. Yes. Yeah. Your own sick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My own <Yeah>. sick. <laughs> oh, well, Reese, I think that's um, a lovely, poignant place. Let's end on that, shall we? Yeah, shall we end, <laughs> end on that? But the, the le- so to wrap up, the lessons are control amongst the chaos. It never fully is controlled 100%. There's, chaos is always going to exist to a certain degree. It's a case of prioritising and finding clarity in what matters and what truly matters and acting upon that. It's about creating an environment and systems for yourself which allow you to deal best with a chaotic life, situation, whatever it might be. Am I barking up the right tree? Spot on. Thank you. you. (laughs) Um, And Reese, do you have anything else to add to this, uh, what's been a lovely, lovely chat? Well, all I'll say is it has been a lovely chat and a lovely walk as well. The The sun is out now. Oh, um, I, yeah, I wish people could see this. But have you noticed how I've chosen to walk in the shade on the ridge here, not back out in the sun? You're such it's a, a bit thoughtful hard. podcast host. <laughs> I know. Thank you very much. Well, I think everyone's going to really enjoy listening to this. And um, unlike a lot of my other guests, you don't really kind of uh, have like a channel or website that you put stuff up out there. So um, instead of saying, if you want to learn more about Reese and what Reese is about, go to his website. Perhaps people can go to the McChrystal Group website or something like that and see where you're coming from, the angle you're coming from. Would that be a good idea? Yeah, please do. Cool. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, this is the outro. The podcast is now finished. But don't hang up the phone yet. I mean, turn off the phone. I mean, 
turn off the podcast because I have one more favour to ask you. If you liked the podcast, which presumably, if you got this far, you did, I did something right, please subscribe, please leave a review, and most importantly, please tell all of your friends because it's just going to be so embarrassing if no one listens to this. I need you on my side to push this out into the world wide web. Please, please help. Please tell everybody, please. And thank you so much. Write a review. Have you done it yet? Have you written that review? See you next time. Bye. Have you written the review yet? Yeah.